Let's turn our hearts to the Word of God, seeking the Lord to illumine our minds and our hearts, to give us understanding of His very Word. Would you pray with me? May the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May we submit and yield to Him as He governs and fills and directs our lives. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would show us the wondrous things of Jesus written in your word. We come before you, I pray, with teachable spirits, seeking whatever it is you have for us. May we not have an agenda at all as we come before your word. Maybe we think we're going to come needing to be comforted and we're going to be challenged, or maybe we think we're in a bad place and need to be challenged and we're going to end up being comforted. We trust you to take your word and apply it to our lives, both personally and corporately. So we come humbly and teachably in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn now to Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 11. Mark 8, 11 to 26. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Friends, this is the word of God. I remember the first job I had as a young boy growing up. I was 13 years old. It was just a summer job. We were you know, living in Pennsylvania at the time. And I worked at a landscaping place. It was called Gooseberry Bush. I don't know if anybody would name a place like that anymore, but I worked from 9 to noon at the Gooseberry Bush and went in every day. I thought to myself, I'm going to try to be responsible and do this right and all of that kind of stuff. And I naturally wanted to be successful at this job. I helped unload trucks and I picked strawberries and tried not to eat too many strawberries and, you know, all of that kind of fun stuff. But that was my first job growing up. And everybody, when they're given a job and given a task to do, wants to be successful. Am I right? You want to be able to hear from your boss, good job, you've done well. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a second. Okay, he sees the Lord, and you know I love Isaiah chapter 6, so I have to comment on it. I promise I won't be preaching all from Isaiah 6. But Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He's confronted with God's holiness and his glory. And obviously he's confronted then with his sinfulness. 
Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people who are not a whole lot better. It's kind of like I stink and they stink and we all stink together, so we're in this in the same boat. The Lord in his graciousness sends the seraph taking a live coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, touches it to his lips, personalizing the forgiveness, saying, see, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for. And then after that, Isaiah is able to hear in the royal court of the Lord, they're asking a question, who's going to go? Who should we say? Isaiah, first hand up, he's excited, he's ready. Here am I, send me. The Lord says, good, I've got a job for you to do. I'm going to send you, and here's what it's going to look like. You're going to go to a people, and even though they're hearing, they're not going to get it. Even though they see, they're not going to perceive, lest they turn and be forgiven. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. Here's what it means to be successful. You're going to fall on your face and fail. You're going to speak, and nobody's going to understand. They're not going to hear. They're not going to get it. Friends, such is the life of a prophet. You know, and maybe this even, and I'm speculating a little bit here, but maybe this is one of the reasons, too, why we are hesitant to share the gospel, to share the good news. We don't look at it as just what God has done for me and then propel me to share that good news with others. We maybe intuitively kind of know people are going to hear but not quite understand. People are going to see and not perceive. And I don't want to go through the misunderstanding and the rejection for such is the life of a prophet. Such was the life of Jesus, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. That as we are now moving towards the end of the first half of the gospel of Mark, The gospel that Mark said, he goes, chapter 1, verse 1, here's what the narrative's all about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first half of the gospel has been primarily concerned with asking and answering this question, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Who is this King? And everything is moving towards the climactic point where Jesus is going to very pointedly ask his followers, ask his disciples, Who does everybody around here say that I am? And they're going to say, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet, and Jesus is going to put it right to them and say, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, confessing on behalf of the twelve, will say, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now that's the trajectory, that's the direction that the gospel is headed. But as Jesus traverses this trajectory, as we follow this direction, it is through much unbelief and hard-heartedness and conflict. And this morning, we're looking at the continued unbelief, the continued hard-heartedness, the lack of understanding, not only of the Pharisees, of Herod, of the scribe, kind of of the religious leaders, the political leaders, and even the mainstream of Jewish life, but also of Jesus' own disciples, See, the conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leadership of the day, it's been heating up and it's continuing to escalate. It's continuing to intensify. But here in this passage, we're given the added knowledge that even Jesus' disciples don't get it. They're still continuing to hear and not understand, to see and not perceive. And Jesus asks them, And he's giving it, and through them, he's obviously asking us as well the pointed question, do you yet not understand? 
Do you yet understand? Do you come to Spruce Creek week after week, month after month, year after year, and do you still not understand? Do you get it? And we're going to look at this, and Jesus is asking that question from two perspectives this morning. He wants to challenge us with two questions. Do you understand your own heart? And do you understand the significance of Jesus? Do you understand your own heart, the dynamics of your own heart? Not just, and I say this often, not just us good Presbyterians, us good Calvinists talking about depravity, and I'm not denying depravity. I want to know, do you understand how depravity works in your life? See, your depravity looks a lot different than my depravity. Do you understand the dynamics of how that, kind of an anatomy of unbelief we're going to take a look at, and then do you understand the significance of Jesus? So let's begin by looking at the anatomy of unbelief. Do you understand your own heart? And way back in chapter 3, we see that the Pharisees and the scribes were busy, I would say, not being a part of the Jesus fan club. Okay, if I could sum up them in a second. There's Jesus, there's his fan club, they're not a part of it. Because Jesus is doing miracles, he's healing people, he's teaching, he's doing wondrous things. And back in chapter 3, do you know what they say? They say, oh, this is of demonic agency. You're in league with Satan. And what Mark is doing is he's now kind of continuing that narrative and he's showing how it's continuing to ask. It's not getting better. It's not like they're turning and saying, oh, we've missed it completely. Because look with me at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus, and I have to admit, I, I see some of the humanity of Jesus in the, you know, he's being what a good prophet would do. What is he doing? He sighs deeply in his spirit. Can you imagine? I've been doing this day after day. Oh, kind of like they still don't get it. It's still. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you. In other words, I'm not going to get in the gutter with you. I refuse to fight this fight with you. You demand a sign, I'm not giving it to you. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's begin to peel some layers and take a look at this. First of all, what is the attitude? So it's easy to see their behavior. They demanded from Jesus a sign. But what was the attitude behind it? The text says they began to argue with him and test him. See, there's actually two kinds of doubt, two kinds of questioning that we can have. One is good, one is not so good. There is a such thing as honest doubting. Lord, I don't get it, but it's coming with a searching heart, a humble heart, a teachable heart. Lord, I don't understand. I have to admit, I have that all the time when I pray for my wife. Lord, why would somebody so young have so much to offer, not be able to even attend church because of her disability, because of her illness? I have to admit, there's searching that's in it. I hope it's, I've, sometimes it's probably arguing and testing, but I hope for the most part it's honest searching, honest doubting. And then there's the kind that says, I know better than you, God, this is the way my life should go. I know what I need, I know what I should have, and I'm going to test you, and I'm going to argue, and I'm going to demand a sign from you. See, commentators tell us that the sign is a token which guarantees the truthfulness 
behind what Jesus is teaching and uttering or the legitimacy of his action. In other words, the Pharisees are not coming and saying, we doubt your power. They're coming and attacking his character. They're not coming and saying, in other words, they're looking around and they've been seeing, they know all the testimonies. They know of the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter with the unclean spirit. They know of the man who was deaf and Jesus doing the funky thing of putting, you know, the, his, the saliva on his tongue and all of a sudden he can hear and speak. They know of his calming the storm. The stories are going around. Oral tradition is happening. Word of his miracles are getting out. But they're questioning his goodness. They're questioning his truthfulness. They're attacking his character. Is he trustworthy? Is he legitimate? This is not a request for another miracle. This is not a doubt of his power. This is a questioning of his goodness. And Jesus is aware of their deep-seated hostility. He understands that their unbelief is a refusal. It's a hard-hearted refusal to respond in faith and to submit in faith to the revelation that they have been given. And what we see here is an anatomy of unbelief. An anatomy of unbelief that even if you believe in the reality of God, believe in the existence of God, believe he's sovereign, believe he's supreme, believe he's powerful, do you trust his goodness? See, I'll tell you another story. I'm reminded of another story of when I was young. I was seven years old. And I'm aging myself here a little. It was 1969, and I was taken to the hospital to take my tonsils out. Back then, not outpatient, okay, none of this. My parents took me in. They weren't even allowed to stay overnight with me, but they take me in. Now, some things never change. I was a rabid sports fan even back then. So my parents asked me, they take me in, and I'm sure they're expecting I'm going to ask them for things like ice cream when I'm done. They said, what can we bring you tomorrow, Jeff? And I said, the sports section. I want to read the box score and see how the Yankees did in the game. So I'm not sure if I made even any sense to myself at age seven, let alone my age now. But I came. But here's the anatomy of unbelief. Did I, you would think I would trust that my parents would bring me the sports section the next day, right? No. I had to ask the doctor. I had to ask the nurse. I had to ask the people who brought my lunch. I had to ask the candy striper, whoever that is. I think I even asked my roommate's parents. And the next morning, I ended up with seven or eight sports sections of the daily paper. See, there's no internet back then. I couldn't just pull out the phone and take a look and see how they did. The anatomy of unbelief was I didn't trust in the trustworthiness. I had a deep-seated, not spoken, suspicion, maybe my parents would forget. Yes, they're powerful enough to be able to hear my request, but are they good enough? This anatomy of unbelief goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden where the serpent again showed up on the scene? Genesis chapter 3. And look at the anatomy. This is an anatomy of unbelief. This is the anatomy of depravity, friends, that you and I have inherited. Do we know our own hearts? Do we yet understand? Because in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent says to the woman, Oh, you won't surely die. Calling God a liar. Impugning his character, if not his power. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at the serpent's strategy, and it hasn't changed. He calls God a liar. He attacks his truthfulness. You will not surely die. Then he assaults God's love and goodness. He says, God's not letting you have this because God knows when you have, your eyes will be open. You're going to have knowledge. You're going to be able to see. One commentator on this rightly says, he says, this is a flat charge that God does not have our best interests in mind. This is to say that if you obey God, you won't be happy. And he calls us, he says, this is the big lie that lives in the heart of every sin and of every sinner. This is always the root of any particular disobedience. We don't believe God is good. We don't believe God is personally for us. So the craftiness of the serpent is to say to Adam and Eve, since God is not really for you, he's withholding some good. He's saying, God knows when you eat of this, first of all, he's lying, you won't surely die. But he's basically withholding some form of happiness, implying that you have the right to take on the job yourself. You have the right to determine your own happiness. You have the right to become your own God. The Pharisees come and they test Jesus and they argue with Jesus saying, we know you're powerful enough. We have the same suspicion that our parents have had. We don't believe you're good enough. We don't believe that if we give our hearts to you, we'll truly be happy. We have a deep-seated suspicion that you won't take care of us. Do you understand your own heart? Do you not see that God calls us to be happy only in him. And he says there's a way to be happy. You give your life to Jesus and the gospel. He's going to talk about his vision. We're going to talk about this next week. That the way to be happy is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. That whoever would save his own life, whoever says I'm living for myself, I will hold on, I will protect myself and my interests, I will not, I refuse to give up my rights. My rights are more important than anything else. The promise is you will lose it. But Jesus' radical vision, Jesus' kingdom vision is only he who gives up his life, who loses his life for Christ and the gospel will save it. Do you understand the dynamics of your... I know we confess we're depraved. Do you see how it works in relationships? Do you see how it works? I'll hold back from giving myself to God. Oh, I'll give myself mm, so much. I'll give so much to him, so I'll believe, but I, oh, I'm not going to get too radical for Jesus. That's, that's, that's for the crazies out there. I'm not doing that. Or I'll give myself in relationships, but lay down my life for the good of another... Who will take care of me if I lay down my life for my wife's agenda? Or if I lay down my life for my husband's agenda? Who will take care? Do you not see the anatomy of this? That when you do that, you are deep-seated, suspicious that God has the goodness, not the power, the goodness to take care of you. The goodness to be for you. The goodness to be your shepherd you shall not want. 
do you understand your own heart? Which leads us, do you understand the significance of Jesus? Because look, if we look at verse 14 and see, I got it again, how the flow of the narrative is progressing. Jesus knew this was coming to a head with the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember I said, they were never part of the Jesus fan club. And of course, Jesus knows that this is going to be a clash of kingdoms that is going to lead all the way to the crucifixion. But that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was leaving behind a group of his followers, his leadership community, his disciples, and he was sure hoping that they would understand the significance of Jesus. But look, verse 14, they thought it was all about bread. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And so Jesus cautions, cautions them, basically saying, watch out. And he doesn't say, watch out, you only have one loaf of bread, and there's several of us in this boat. He says, beware of something. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begun discussing with one another, so they're arguing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're thinking, leaven, bread, it's got it. Jesus is mad at us that we forgot to bring lunch for the picnic as we went across to the other side on the boat. And Jesus, of course, now, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? You know, he's kind of like now being a teacher that's scolding his students. So he kind of, and you can almost picture them cowering a little bit. Guys, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Uh, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, Jesus used this kind, he knows where this is headed with the Pharisees, with the political line of Herod, with the scribes that are coming. But he's using this now as a context, as an opportunity to teach his disciples. And why does he do this? Because it's where this whole narrative is headed. He knows he's not getting anywhere with the Jewish leadership of his day. He knows it's heading towards the showdown that will climax, that will culminate in the cross. And he knows he's leaving behind his agenda, his mission in this group. And do they still not get it? What kingdom vision do they have? Do they understand? Which again begs the question, do you understand? What kingdom vision do you have? Because he warns his disciples, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And as one commentator put it, yes, leaven originally had to do with bread. It was used by Jews to make bread, except at Passover time. When they were forbidden, they were told to make unleavened bread, reminding them of when they were in such a hurry to leave their slavery in Egypt that they only had time to make unleavened bread. Jesus, though, is warning his disciples about leaven, not of physical bread, but of the teaching, the corruption, the wickedness of the Pharisees and their differing kingdom vision. The Pharisees' kingdom vision... God's going to return, God's going to come, and he's going to have law-abiding Jewish citizens who will keep the purity. We're going to have a hard fence around us. We're pure, everybody's out. That's how they'll deal with the world. Or the leaven of, the, of Herod. 
Herod, as the king, basically says, we're going to have the royal line of power go through our family. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom vision is radically different. We will see next week that Jesus' kingdom vision is not about keeping the world out. It's not about a feigned purity. It is not about worldly power. It is not about political power. Jesus' vision is about laying down your lives for the good of others. His disciples are arguing about bread. All they're concerned with is bread. And Jesus is concerned about their kingdom vision. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble before me? And as one writer put it, this is not just a way of saying, I can't believe how stupid and blind you are, but he's warning his disciples, if you continue along this road, you're in danger of going the same way of the Israelites in Jeremiah's day. And what was the problem in those days? Much like the problem Jesus saw with the Pharisees and with Herod, people were so caught up with their own concerns, their own agendas, that they were completely unconcerned about the injustice and wickedness in their own hearts, in their own lives, and in their own society, that God had no alternative but to abandon them to their fate at the hands of foreigners. Jesus is basically saying if they effectively worship other gods, those other gods and their devotees will have power over them. And that, as we shall see, lies near the heart of Jesus' warnings against his contemporaries. Friends, what would make Jesus groan inwardly today. He says to them and he says to us, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand that the point, the significance of Jesus's miracles were never the miracles in and of themselves, but they were what they pointed, pointing beyond themselves to the secret of Jesus's own person, the Jesus, the secret that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord and King of the whole world. And what kind of king is he? Notice the text says that there was one loaf that they had with them. Commentators point that that is right. There was one loaf, Jesus, the true bread of life. Jesus was the bread of life that was broken, that was given. What is Jesus' vision? Jesus' vision is one of sacrifice for the good of others. Our very salvation is dependent upon Jesus as the bread of life being broken, being sacrificed so that we might live, that we might be made whole through him. And isn't it interesting that where Jesus did not leave a sign, he refused to give a sign to that generation. The Pharisees demand a sign and Jesus says no. That Jesus, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension into heaven, and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, has left a sign for the world. That sign for the world is the church. Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he's left behind a very physical, very tangible picture, sign of his reality, of his presence. It's called you and I. It's called the church. The question is, what kind of sign are we pointing to? What kind of reality are we representing? 
What kind of kingdom vision do we have? Do we leave a sign for the world to see? See, Jesus, the Pharisees said they want a sign. Jesus says, no, the world says they want a sign. And Jesus says, take a look at my church. All men will know that you are my brothers, that I exist, that I am real by the sign of your love for one another. You are my ambassadors for Christ. As if I were making my appeal through you, be reconciled to God. The church is the sign and the foretaste and the agent of the reality of the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. As I was talking about, we were talking about last week, the church is the faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world. But do we live for being right? Do we live for our agenda? Do we live for our vision of whatever purity is? Do we live for our vision of whatever power is? Or do we live according to Jesus' kingdom vision of laying down our lives, laying down our rights, laying down our agendas for the good of other, for the cause of the gospel and the good of others? We are the sign of the true King of Kings. We are Jesus' very own presence on the earth. So the question begs us, do you understand the significance of Jesus? Let's pray. And Holy Spirit, we pray that we would understand. We would understand our own hearts, and we would understand the significance of Jesus. So Father, we come and we pray that we would grow in being a faithful presence of your love, of your truth, of your goodness, of your beauty in the world that We would be able to say to the world, look at us and in seeing us, see Jesus. We point away from ourselves and we point to the reality of Jesus. So may we give the world a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And may we be the agents of the kingdom that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.